Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the developer behind the excellent Mac email client, MimeStream, Neil Javeri. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Uh, I'm very excited to be here and to talk to you about uh, all things MimeStream and the, the indie app development space as well. This has been on my list for so long, uh, with always with the caveat of waiting for it to get out of beta. <laughs> and now it's been out of beta for a little while now, uh, so it's finally like timing worked out. But uh, this has been an app that has been pretty much open 24-7 on my Mac uh, for I don't know how many years now. It is so, so good. So I'm very, very, very excited to uh, to kind of dig into this one. Uh, well, I'm very glad to hear that you've, uh, you know, been getting a lot of use out of it. Uh, you know, email is definitely one of those things that, you know, if you use it a lot, then it's one of those things that's just like open. It's like one of the first apps you open along with your browser and, you know, your email app and maybe your, you know, chat app that you use the most of. Yeah, exactly. It's like if I restart my Mac, there's like a series of, yeah, like four or five apps that pretty much get open almost immediately. And yeah, just like super critical right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah, it's been out for about three years now. Oh, that's so crazy. Opened up this public beta in September 2020, uh, if I'm remembering the dates correctly now. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, and we'll we'll get into the, the specifics here in a second. But before before we get too much into MindStream itself, I want to give everybody an uh, introduction into who you are. So the way I usually start that out is by asking the same three questions, which is, where are you from? Do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then we can talk about like, what was your career that led up to you starting MimeStream? Yeah, sure. So I uh, am, you know, born and raised in Maryland uh, and, you know, spent, you know, the first, the, the beginning of my life there, uh, went to school for computer science uh, and got a degree in that. Uh, and then worked at like, a small consulting company in, in DC for about a year. Oh, cool. uh, and when I was doing that, you know, I kind of got my start, you know, building web apps for other companies. Uh, you know, it was a consulting kind of gig. So it was very like, you know, billable hours were the most important thing. Yeah. You were trying to like accomplish the customer need with the least number of billable hours possible. So it was, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> And, 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 yeah, it's, it's a fun, it's actually a fun experience, especially when you're just starting out, uh, to be focusing on solving problems really quickly, yeah. uh, rather than solving them really deeply. There's a very different style there. I think one of the interesting things about consulting work like that, I was just talking to somebody about this where it's like, you are often your time because you're billable. And there's a contract signed or whatever. A lot of times your time is like hard set, you know, like the classic triangle of like scope. What is this mm -hmm. scope time? And what's the third one? Quality, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like you, you like time is like perfectly unchangeable. Not even like, like if you worked, if you worked at Apple, haha, wink, wink, uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if you worked at a place where you have these big releases, like time isn't changeable, sort of, but time is changeable because you can work you know, a 70 hour week or something. Right. But with a consulting company, you're literally like, I am not allowed to be writing code for this app more than this many hours. And so it really trains you to like, right. Think very like elastically on scope. And at least right. if you want to succeed, 
and make the customer happy, really identify like the actual user need and like cut through that really quickly. And I do think that was a really valuable skill to build, but it's definitely different than working at like a product company. Yeah, I'm actually really glad that I started my career that way uh, because it really instilled a lot of the joy of, you know, building software and solving problems uh, very early on without a lot of the, you know, like slogging through a lot of the edge cases and the details. It was just like, uh, you know, edge cases and details. Just tell the customer not to do that with the software. Yeah. <laughs> and you know. So was this enterprise software too then? <laughs> yeah, it was mostly, it was yep. mostly, you know, like there you know, <laughs> custom software for small and medium businesses. Uh, and, you know, I was working on like 15 or 20 different ones at, at the same time. And this was, you know, written with like old school web apps, like PHP based and yeah. things like that. So it was, uh, it was a fun time, uh, a fun time in life. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did that for about a year. Uh, then I went to grad school, uh, and left with a master's, uh, degree in computer science as well. Um, you know, I would thought that maybe, you know, I just wanted a change of pace. I thought I might do something a little bit more academic, uh, but got drawn back to industry very quickly. Uh, and I had a good friend that had gone on to Apple and, you know, he was encouraging me to, uh, interview and, you know, just check out the team and stuff. And at that time, I actually didn't really think I was going to go that direction. I was more interested in kind of coming down to New York City and getting into the, you know, like automated trading systems, like the finance end of things. Uh, oh, that okay. was kind of like where I was actually focusing my efforts on. So Apple was the one tech company that I interviewed at. And, uh, wow. you know, actually at that time, funny story, I w was not one of the like computer nerds that used Apple products. I was about to say, based on your background uh, and also you wanting to get into fintech and automation, it's like it's not Apple focused at all, right? I was toting around my Linux laptop, and, you know, <laughs> so I was just like not the poster child of someone who would be like, you know, applying to Apple and, and getting a job there. But, uh, you know, I showed up. I was like, yeah, you know, I don't have an iPhone. I don't have a Mac. Uh, but let's, let's interview and let's, let's talk about this. Uh, and it was a, it was a fun, you know, I, I really enjoyed, um, I, I really enjoyed meeting the people, uh, that I interviewed with. And I remember just being blown away by how fun and energized everybody seemed, uh, when I interviewed with at that time was the Apple mail team. Oh, wow. So you was right into Apple mail then. Yeah, I sailed right into Apple Mail. Uh, and, you know, I had never used Apple Mail uh, at that time. <laughs> you know what? Okay. Here's a, this is an interesting observation from the outside. But, like, I've always gotten the impression it, most of the people, at least on the, like, consumer product teams at Apple that I know, which, to be fair, is already a really thin slice of a thin slice, it seems like they're they're big Apple fans and they that is the world that they know and inhabit. And sometimes it's funny, you know, I came from the Microsoft world and I was on Android for a very long time. Uh, sometimes it's funny talking to people internal to Apple because it's like the outside world, like there is like this bubble, not necessarily from a like technical perspective, but from a like design or feature set or whatever perspective, there is this sort of bubble because everybody like lives in the same ecosystem and uses all the same stuff. Was it, did you feel that going in? Like, I have this very different perspective than everybody else? Or were you just like, I hope I fit in? 
I 100% felt that way um, right off the bat. You know, I was, I think, one of the few people that sailed in there without ever having bought an Apple product myself. Wow, no <laughs> so, Apple product. Okay, so. No, I, I never even bought an iPod. That's what I, I literally, like, that was where I was going. Did you have a MP3 player of some kind? Oh, some like creative labs mp3 player that i hooked up to my windows box that was <laughs> next to my four other windows boxes and my linux box and yeah i, I was, was gonna see well, because i i was a, i was a big dell dj fan uh and oh, i had one of those yeah i had one of those oh, dell DJs too. Person. <laughs> yeah i was so I excited one. about it uh oh, i loved that i loved that uh love that device interesting okay okay <laughs> It, so, it was, it was very interesting showing up the first day and, you know, my, my just getting, just diving right into the Apple ecosystem. And part of me was like, what am I doing here? Like, I can't believe they actually hired me. I don't know anything about these products. Uh, but, you know, I instantly. That's so interesting. It, re it really is. I, I think I was a little bit of an exception, especially in that era um, where, you know, like this was January 2010. I was interviewing in 2009. So, so post yeah. iPhone, pre iPad yeah, though. Post, so we're right in yeah. the thick of pre everything. Pre iPad, yep. Uh, so it was it was a good time, but you know, I think even in that era, um, Apple was still pretty focused on on hiring people who you know already had experience with the technology stack, experience with the products, uh, and I had neither. Um, you know, certainly if I didn't have a Mac, I'd never done any Cocoa development before. So I was just, that's what I was going to say. Like, were you on, were you on front end or back end? Like, were you writing objective C? Yeah, I was hired for the front end, uh, to, to work on the front end, uh, wow. pieces. Uh, yeah. And you know, so literally my first like two weeks on the job, were just reading the Aaron Hillegas book about Cocoa development and just that's sort of amazing. learning it all, you know, from, from scratch. Uh, so it was, uh. It was a really fun time though. And I, I, I fell in love with everything almost immediately. Um, you know, I was like, oh, wow. All right. Now I see what these people are talking about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I resisted this all for a long time, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's something that I just, you know, I, I fell into really, really quickly. Um, email was also something that I had no particular, uh, professional experience with other than just using it in a, you know, personal context, you yeah. know, and just kind of like liking it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called myself like an email, you know, guru or power user or anything like that. I was just some, you know, kid with a degree that just needed a job. Uh, and it, 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 it worked. So it was, uh, it was, it was kind of funny how that all, um, all panned out. I mean, you know, looking back on it at that time, I had no particular opinion about email. I would have never anticipated that like 13 years later, I'd still be doing email. Like that was just <laughs> not something I anticipated at all. But uh, here we are. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, very, very lucky and, and very glad that, you know, I found that path uh, kind of early on. Okay. So was this, were you primarily on the Mac team then or... Yeah, so I got hired for the Mac team. Okay. But as soon as I showed up, they're like, hey, we got this project. Uh, and the project was the iPad. Uh, right. So, so then I started working on the iPad uh, mail app uh, kind of early on. But, you know, as a junior engineer, like it, there was, it was, it, everything had kind of been already kind of built up. Um, and we were kind of in like the final, like, you know, 
nine months of the software cycle and it bug was just kind of like and bug fixing and just like some last like bits of polish here and there. Yeah. You mentioned uh, in consulting, not having to go too deep on the edge cases. I would imagine at a company shipping products to basically every country and like every language, it's just all edge and email in particular. It's just all edge cases everywhere. All edge cases, top to bottom. And I honestly <laughs> found that instantly addicting. Like Ooh, I okay. just, I, I love focusing on the details and just getting really mired in things and just like, you know, building the same feature five times and then finally picking the approach that works the best. Like, I just, I love that stuff. I just find that so just mentally satisfying. That's crazy. Yeah, because it's basically a web browser uh yeah. inside of there right because you're rendering html and a whole bunch of yeah for the conversations for displaying messages there's you know use of webkit but the, you know the rest of the app is obviously like you know just uh using the lot of platform native controls yeah, et yeah. Uh, it's not like uh you know there's some other email apps that are like basically reskin the gmail web ui and put it in a window you know we kind of went the approach of like it's a full native app um Right. You know, very similar to a lot of Apple's own productivity tools. Uh, and, you know, there's pros and cons to all of that. Uh, I t- happen to think the pros outweigh the cons. But uh, yeah, so, you know, I started uh, working on the iPad. Um, and uh, so after that got shipped, uh, then I did work on Apple Mail for the desktop for a while for, for OS X um, for, for Lion uh, when we were introducing Conversation View. Um, you know, I kind of worked on on that for a good while. What is the conversation view? Is that just like instead of showing messages all as individual messages, it's like threading them the way the Gmail had been doing? Right. It's threading them and then showing all the messages that are part of the conversation in one long scrollable view. Yeah. That was a feature in um in in Apple Mail that didn't arrive until, you know, until Lion. Okay. Uh and so that was what 10.7 i think uh yeah that was 10.7 i can't keep track of mac os uh, numbers <laughs> the names the numbers and the, the 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 names are always hard to keep track of i'm actually glad now we're just well i, I could keep track of the cats but the the cities my brain <laughs> just can't i can't do oh, it yeah. i'm glad that we've switched to mostly numbers i i mean like internally i try to use the numbers whenever possible <laughs> yeah. because the, the cities are are more challenging yeah um, for sure but yeah, so that was kind of like, you know, moving from iPad to uh to to Mac was was kind of, you know, also really fun and I think that contrast uh between working on the iPad and working on the Mac I instantly got addicted to the Mac side because it just felt like the things people were doing in email on their desktop were just so much more edge casey and yeah. so much more, you know, really going off in the weeds and doing complicated stuff. Whereas on their phone, they were just kind of like, or their iPad, they were just sort of like, oh, I got a new message. Let me just tap on it to sort of screen it. Like, you know, in those days, people were really using email on their mobile devices as like a screener rather than like right. a, a real place to do absolutely everything. You know, it was like a screener and... Uh, app to do quick replies on um yeah and obviously things have evolved nowadays you know there's yeah, a lot of yeah. people who basically just use their phone as their sole computer uh and that's you know a common use case now um but in that day you know 13 years ago <laughs> it wasn't quite 
<laughs> wasn't quite there. Working on Apple Mail in particular, it's like both, I mean, all the products across all the product lines is targeting all of humanity, basically, right? As far as <laughs> use cases. Yep. But the demographic of people on using mail on their, you know, iPad or iPhone versus the demographic of people using mail on their Mac itself. I would imagine on the Mac side, if you're using Apple Mail, the Mail app, it's probably a much larger percentage of those people are like, quote, power users uh, compared to people using it on their phones or their iPad. Oh, absolutely. The people that were doing things with Apple Mail were just yeah, definitely the power users. All the casual users were just going to webmail in the browser. Yeah. And, you know, that's that was just fine for them. You know, we had people who are just, you know, all the multiple accounts and they just want to have all this offline storage of email and, you know, partial offline. And there's just a lot of complications um, in a lot of those workflows. Which that probably was different because it was definitely, you know, like Apple Mail in the you know, pre mobile days, I guess on the Mac, it's like, that was probably a more, uh, what's the more consumer slice of people back then. Right. Because right. It wasn't like Gmail was the default, the way it kind of is now. And so the idea of the original iMac is like, Hey, we'll get you on online and this sort of like easy to use. Here's a suite of tools or whatever. Yeah. That use case, if you're still using a desktop client for your mail in 2000 you know 11 2012 you're probably uh yeah i think that definitely is true was true i think that also reflected in sort of my experience in terms of like who was using it you know i think at the same time there were still you know because email is not something that is super portable when people use their like isp email addresses and they don't want to change them or people have their old you know, at AOL.com or at Yahoo.com or at Comcast.net addresses. And they don't want to change those because they've given them to all the, you know, everybody in their life and every company in their life. And so for those use cases, you know, you might still be stuck in using an email client. But certainly if you were using, you know, Gmail, et cetera, in those days, I think it was a fairly popular option to just go directly to the web browser and just access your email there. Yeah. And, you know, it still is a super popular option. Although, you know, I, I feel like email is hitting a little bit of a second renaissance, uh, as of, as of late. So, you know, people are definitely coming out of, coming out of the browser and trying other tools a little bit more and more lately. It feels like, uh, it's hitting sort of its second, second wind. Uh, we, we can get into that a little bit, a little bit later as well. Yeah. I was about to say, you're, you're part of that, but like, you know, how, like, what's sort of the, the story of the transition from you working on mail apps at Apple to you starting your own uh, indie mail app? So, what happened there was I worked on then, you know, go, after working on iPad mail, I worked on uh, mail for OS 10. And then I got switched into working on the first notes app for oh. OS 10. So, I worked on, built the first notes app um, for 10.8 Mountain Lion. I think that's what, yeah, Mountain Lion. Uh, and that was just a really transformative experience for me. Building an app from scratch. Yeah. You know, and like making the first commit in the repository. Wasn't, uh, maybe you can't say this, but I've always heard that the original mail, the original notes app synced through IMAP, like the mail oh, it protocol. Did. Yeah. It did. Absolutely. <laughs> I, it that absolutely seems did. crazy. <laughs> It, well, you know, it was one of those things where 
it started notes started as a feature in apple mail oh yeah that's right in mail itself and this was just people were using drafts to sort of create notes for themselves and i forget what release it was done in but it was basically like a ui treatment to be like oh you can have notes in mail that are drafts it's just reskin to look like a little quick you know note or something and which makes sense i that's something i still do to this day is i will draft up an email in notes because it's easier it syncs everywhere and then i'll paste it into whatever it is i need to to send it through right so notes being a separate app was a way to kind of like formalize that but we ran into a real problem which was that you know of course we wanted to move off of imap syncing when we were building a new notes app for OS 10, but we couldn't because people had, you know, multiple Macs running previous versions of the OS that might not necessarily update all at the same time. And we yeah. wanted to preserve continuity syncing between the two. And furthermore, iOS continued to have the notes app that was on iOS, which was a dedicated app sort of from the start also was syncing by IMAP. Right. And, the release schedule for the two for for the OS 10 update and the iOS update were not in sync. Yeah. So we just had no choice but to release IMAP based note syncing. And that was a fun project because that was, you know, at that time we had to chop up a lot of the back end bits of mail. Uh, and get that into a shared framework so that the notes app could use that. And that was right. actually my first foray into sort of the back end bits of mail, you know, the first like iPad and, 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 and mail for lion chapter, I was mostly focused on the front end. Mm. Uh, and you know, through this part, I sort of began to get a little bit more involved in like the back end of the app and like, how does, you know, how does an app actually sync through one of these traditional email protocols like how does email actually work you know like a deep technical level and yeah that was sort of where i hit my second win of like oh this is really interesting to me this is something that no one else is particularly interested in but i just found it interesting you know to just you know see it all and it's uh, that's always a good place to be when you find yourself interested and excited by something that everybody around you even people who do it professionally are kind of bored by it's like that's right. maybe a good sign of like ooh, i could make an impact here <laughs> right right yeah that was that was something where you know that was kind of like my my career sort of it started on the front end and then moved towards the back end uh during my time at apple after we released that app you know i moved into engineering management positions at at apple uh i managed uh, you know, teams that were working on the notes app, uh, and the front end of the mail app. Uh, and then later we kind of, you know, I, I managed a, a, a little bit of a larger team that then worked on all the underlying frameworks for mail and, and notes on, um, you know, both Mac and iOS. Okay. Uh, and so this was probably around 2017 or so. Yeah. Around 2017, uh, you know, it was kind of when, when I, you know, ultimately decided to, to leave Apple and try my hand at some different things. And that was, it was an interesting progression because I kind of felt like, you know, email had started to get a little tedious to me email? <laughs> after doing really? it for seven the years. Most yeah, I was like, oh, the most exciting <laughs> of topics. I was like, okay, this is starting to get like a little, 
Like it's just, it's a, it's a big ocean liner. It's like hard to steer it. Yeah. It's really difficult. I was getting a little antsy for being able to produce a little bit more impact with like less of these really deep engineering projects. Uh, and you know, it sounds simple on the surface. It's like, it's a list of messages and a list, like you click it and you render it. What's so hard, but email is like itself is a serious tower of legacy and everything is just specification. Yeah. And giant social contracts, right? Like, and just from a technical standpoint, it's just technical specification layered on top of technical specification yeah. layered on top of technical specification in it's all in service of preserving backwards compatibility so yeah. just just the table sticks for even sending and receiving a basic email today is very high and layered with a lot of bad actors too right like yeah there's a lot of practical i imagine that's a significant amount of time spent is just dealing with when i think of the features that mail has added in the last few years which may have been after you left but like even that you know private relay is kind of related right and like different dealing with a spam but b like tracking pixels and all that junk right it's just yeah it's a quagmire yeah it 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 really is and then there's the backwards compatibility problem because you would not believe how many people are still running you know versions of outlook on windows that yeah. are more than 10 years old and you don't want to break those people and you want to sort of preserve compatibility with them uh so it really is just kind of going very far back um so i actually left email for a little bit uh and i tried my hands at a couple other things uh but all that kind of didn't was the idea to do something independent right away or did, were you joining other teams? Yeah, the idea was to do something independent. I okay. always wanted to do something independent. Uh, and that was just sort of like, you know, like a lot, like a long-term goal of mine. Uh, and, you know, I think around, I was around 30 at that time. And, you know, that was like, oh, you know, maybe I should think about, you know, what's next. It was just, it was just like magic number that just made me think a little bit more about yeah. what I want to do next. And I was like, all right, you know, if I'm going to take a big risk, like I might as well do this like now instead of waiting another 10 years, it might be a little harder to do. So, you know, I tried a few other things in like the health tech space, uh, and I never really just got any traction at all there. And then I started working kind of casually on, I never, never imagined that I would write an email app after I left. I thought <laughs> I'm already, <laughs> hold on. You started working casually on an email app. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I started working casually on an email app. I literally, <laughs> I literally thought I was just. I don't know if that sentence has ever been said by anybody else ever since like the nineties. Yeah. You know, I found it comforting as I was trying to figure out the right thing to do next. I, it started as a little bit of a hobby project where I was just like, Oh, I'll just, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to learn some of Apple's new technologies. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought it would be like a good little playground to just, you know, build like a limited scope email app. There seems to be, again, from the outside as someone who's never worked at Apple, there seems like there's because of kind of what we talked about, this sort of very weird kind of unique culture of like, is it homogeny? Is that the right word? Like everybody kind of seems like they're coming from a similar place and similar uh, background and tech stacks and all that stuff. It seems like whenever people leave Sometimes it seems like people have a hard time with that just because it's so <laughs> weird and unique. And like a lot of people end up going back. Did you feel that at all? Or were you still, you know, in your Linux uh, 
kind of on a little different world. You know, no, I, I, I think I resisted it for like a little bit. I kept my, I kept my Linux uh, desktop at home for like the first year that I was employed at <laughs> Sitting Apple. in a corner. <laughs> and it kept, it sat there in the corner and then like, you know, it slowly just collected dust. And then, and then I was like, yeah, no, I just need to get rid of this thing and just, you know, go all in. Um, but no, when I left, I mean, I was, I, I, I love Apple's ecosystem and and the products and i just i really enjoy everything that it stands for i really enjoy the sense of like cohesion and the sense of there being just kind of one good way to do things that's something that really appeals to me both as a user as well as a developer as well as like a product maker um i really like a lot of those things so i mean i never left that ecosystem after after i left apple that was just you know completely completely ensconced in it and i don't think i ever will well, I just meant culturally with work, like as much as it's a giant organization that it's ah, hard to move in, it seems like right. it's unique as well. And so it is. And it evolved a lot. Mm, yeah. Cause you were there at that beginning. Cause I was there from 2010 to 2017. Uh, so about seven and a half years. Uh, and yeah, I, I saw it evolve a lot, you know, and I saw a lot of like, you know, fresh blood come in as well. So things definitely, you know, changed. And I think uh, not that there weren't fresh perspectives before there definitely were, but I definitely saw an increase in the number of people like me coming into the company where, yeah, you know, even in, in 2010, ideas. I was just like, Oh, I was a really, I felt like a weird outlier, you know, when I, when I started, uh, and you know, by the end, I, while it still wasn't necessarily the common case, it wasn't all that much of an outlier, uh, for someone to just kind of, you know, come in and, uh, and do something, you know, or just yeah. not necessarily have a ton of experience with the the product per se. I will say actually there is something magical about the first time you interact with any product and the impressions that you form, like the impression, the first impressions that I had of mail in particular from my first week of using it were things that really stuck with me. And I mean, there, there's a lot of things there that I think I held on to and, and tried to execute on and improve during my time there. And even now working on Mindstream, I still like look back at my first experiences, you know, with, with that app and, a lot of the things that I, you know, a lot of the conclusions I reached in that first week, I think I, I still kind of am working on even now. It's, uh, it's, it's really funny how that, how that. Interesting. Out. Like what's like, what's one of those, you know, just like, you know, being wanting, I, I remember something I just wanted really bad was to be able to just create a rule, like a, a rule mm. from within my email client and actually have that run on the server. And I remember being so confused that you know, the rules in mail were client side yeah. and they ran in the app and they didn't run if your Mac wasn't online. I just like, you know, I, when I first joined, I didn't understand that there wasn't a way for an email client to communicate that back to a traditional IMAP server. I didn't know those details yet. I was just confused as a user that it, you know, ran locally and yeah. it didn't run on the server. So, you know, that sort of thing is that th those sorts of insights really stuck with me for a long time. That's just like, you know, one example of many. Okay. So you're, you're, you're casually for comfort and fun <laughs> building, uh, what is often used as, uh, the example of an app where developers go to like, you know, cry 
Uh, so you're yeah. bu- you're building an email app just for yourself, I guess. Just kind of. It was something. Yeah, I I, I worked on it for you know two or three months, and then I shared it with some some friends and. Surely you were thinking this is like, there's something here though, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I maybe had the thought that it was possible to do it. And I looked at, you know, I had some inspiration around me and I, I, I thought that it might be possible, but there also was like, you know, this is insane. Don't right. do this. Yeah. This is not the app. This is like, not the app that you want to try to build a company based off of, uh, <laughs> but it, it was just, you know, it was something that I just, I think I just got drawn to, uh, and you just sort of just, so what was the, what was the pitch then in that first one? Like, were you just literally remaking mail, but built by you or did you have a point of view or something at the beginning? The original point of view was that it was like, Oh, all my email accounts are on Gmail and there's a lot of Gmail features that I don't get through mail. So let yep. me make something that, you know, uses the Gmail API and gets me the Gmail features really easy. And, oh, it'll be easy because I use the Gmail API instead of having to deal with IMAP and, um, you know, all that complication that comes with implementing IMAP. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, it'll just be a lot simpler and it'll just do the things that I need it to do. Uh, and of course, you know, that wound up being not as simple as I thought. Not as simple, but I will say the pitch, like me coming in, not knowing who you were or whatever, the first I heard of it, just the yeah. pitch of the mail app, but it works well with Gmail and gives you all those because <laughs> I lived in a world of, uh, I liked the mail app for lots of different reasons. But frequently, I had to open the web interface to do random things, accept a meeting invite, or uh, or see if I have already accepted a meeting invite, right? Or I'm trying to like the way labels work and all that stuff. So right. that pitch, I guess, from the very beginning, I still think that's the most clear cut. This is why you want to use this thing, pitch. Yeah, it is the elevator pitch. You know, I try to I try to pitch the app in a way that someone who's like. Or I have tried to pitch the app in a way that someone who's never used an email client can easily get. And I found my success rate with that to be less than ideal. Uh, but the success rate of just explaining, you know, what the app does to people who have used email clients is, is very easy. Uh, you know, they, they instantly get it. And, you know, while that's not, that's a smaller segment of our user base than I would have expected going into it. Like I would have expected the majority of my users would be, you know, former Apple mail users. It's actually smaller than I would have. It's like 30 or 40% is oh, what really? is self-reported. Yeah. A lot of people are coming from the browser okay. uh, and, and leaving, leaving the webmail interface behind. And a lot of people are also coming from other apps too, that they've used over the years, which I guess maybe is in the same bucket as Apple mail users. Yeah, it's like the email client kind of users, thing. but it really is almost, it's almost 50, 50 between, huh former webmail users and formal email client users uh coming to the app which is kind of not what i was expecting going into it but yeah you know i think the start was just really i didn't i wasn't sure that i would have the stamina to convert it into a real business yeah uh, i wasn't sure what that would look like in terms of you know as a bootstrapped self-funded company i knew it would be a very long road to go there and trying to go the venture funding route, I wasn't really sure that that was the right approach for an email product either. 
uh, because email is an in very like interoperable thing. It's not like designed to be a winner yeah. takes all kind of thing. It's right. meant to be like, I'm a good, you know, I'm one component of this broader technical ecosystem. Yeah. The only way to like squeeze money out of it to make that type of investment worth it would all be things you probably are deeply uncomfortable with <laughs> <laughs> that. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, like there's a lot of data, uh, that people yeah, trust, exactly. uh, going through their email app. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would not want to, uh, do anything that would violate anyone's trust in the, uh, in the app. So that was, that was the sort of thing where I was hesitant at first because I, I think I intrinsically knew that bootstrapped was the right approach for an app like this, but I wasn't sure if it would, I, I knew it would be a high cost to pay basically. Yeah. Uh, and it, it proved to, it proved to be a pretty <laughs> yeah. high, high cost to pay, uh, you know, in terms of just how long it, how long it took. So you, you said you started showing it to people a couple months in. Yeah. When was the point when you're like, all right, I'm all in, I'm going to try and make this a thing. It was around 2019 okay. that, I was building it and I shared it with some people in like, I don't know, late 2019, like December or something, 2019. And I got, why is 2019? I can't tell you how many things the origin story starts. It's probably because that's when I was building mine. And that's when I was the most aggressively like making new contacts. And then all those, the ones, all those people who then made something, it's like, Oh yeah, it all comes back to this one year. Uh, but it is kind of weird. Yeah, it's all it's all lining up. Yeah, it is. It, it takes a few years to build anything that's worth, you know, in today's world, it does take a few years to build anything. Nah, you just slap AI on easy. it and boom, you're, <laughs> boom. <laughs> you're massively I mean, successful instantly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not really it, it, it's it's it'd be tough to to make a productivity app that is worth using in less than even with a big team, even with funding, I mean, I just don't know how you could do something like that in certainly not possible to make something decent in six months, a year, even it just takes time. Yeah. Well, certainly not something as deep as email too. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. That's or just anything in the productivity space. I mean, even making like a decent, you know, even an area that might be a little less complicated, it still is a lot of, you know, there's just the table stakes are so high. People yeah. expect a lot of things and there's a lot of good options out there. And if you don't have all the things, any one of those little missing things can be a deal breaker for, right. you know, any particular user. And then somebody can take your hook and then integrate it into their product. That, that too. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so it was, you know, it, 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 it does take a while. Um, but you know, late 2019, I got a couple friends, like maybe 20 friends using the app um and you know they really liked it and you know i i was still experimenting with other other business ideas at that time uh were you full-time doing independent things or were you also like consulting or had a no i was i was full-time doing independent things um at that time you know i was really trying to figure it out uh i was committed to like i'm gonna figure this out or i'm gonna you know go find another job um at some point in the future uh i was i was in that that phase but yeah you know it people people really liked it and that's when i was like okay you know everyone is telling me to just build the email app uh and you know these were the same people that were telling me don't build an email app and then they Once used they my dinky very it, yeah. very yeah very very early thing was like oh actually you should just build this email app 
And I was like, oh, maybe let's try this. Maybe uh, I was super unsure about it. And, you know, I remember I, I posted it. I tried to get some more beta users. I like posted it in like May of 2020 somewhere. I want to say some forums, maybe the like Mac rumors forums. And like, it was like crickets, like three people downloaded it. And I was like, oh no, this is not gonna, not gonna really catch on. Um, but you know, slowly but surely I, I left the website up. I, I put a website up and like slowly but surely over the summer, people started finding it, you know, just one at a time. And this I is just a being, totally free beta. It was just a totally free beta because I wasn't really sure what I was doing with it at that time. I yeah. just wanted to see if anyone actually wanted to use it or not. And there was so much that was still missing from the app in in those days. So much just basic functionality was just not complete, not there. Uh, but it was it was something I was I was working on constantly. And uh, oh, I remember in like June 2020, passing a hundred signups for the beta, and I was like wow that's such a big number like in, in my i mean it sounds ridiculous now like <laughs> but no i mean coming from zero right like coming from zero 100 was super exciting super super exciting uh so i was like all right like it's really clear i've got some work to do so i was like i'm gonna try this till the end of the year uh so i kept working on it and then in like September of 2020, I thought, let me try to get another 50 or 100 users. So I posted it to Hacker News and that sort of just bubbled up to the front page of Hacker News. And then a couple other publications picked it up and wrote about it the next day. So my goal of getting another 50 to 100 signups turned into getting like 50,000 signups for Ooh. the app. And I was like, uh oh, I was not prepared for the influx of users that were coming. And it was just me at this time. Yeah. What was the main cost of that? Is it support then? Because you didn't have any, you don't have your own backend, right? Yeah. It was mostly, you know, the, mostly the user support was the main ongoing, you know, issue still, even today is the main, you know, the main cost of, of doing things. Yeah. And it, it becomes, it does, you know, because I take, I, I really take every single bug report that people, you know, report seriously especially if there's anything related to core functionality like if they're yeah. like you know i tried to hit send and i got this error it's like you know what we we got to drop everything we're doing we got to figure out why that happened that's just that's just that's not a bug we can live with yeah that's just a table stakes thing right that happens once or twice and somebody's out yeah exactly uh and that's the sort of thing where i, I actually see that as like perhaps the number one value proposition of the app uh, of just providing a reliable experience. Uh, and so, you know, that's something I, I, I treat very carefully. But when you get a lot of users, you get a lot of stuff like that. So, yeah. and then it becomes really hard to, to sift through it all. I remember the first few days of just like, there was an email coming in every minute during waking hours. And I was just like, <laughs> I can't keep up with that. You know, I felt bad. But like three weeks in, I was like, I'm more than a th i'm still more than a thousand emails in the hole like my wrists are aching i'm trying to respond and to you're not everyone. making any money right so i'm not it's making like, any it's money exciting, I can't. but also like it's just a whole lot of work with not payoff yet 
Right. Uh, so that was there, there was two open questions to building an app like this. this is like one will people use it and then two can you monetize it? And I didn't even thought about monetization at all. <laughs> I had no thoughts about it. I just wanted to see could I get people to use it or not. That was like the first questions. Were you getting a lot of questions about that? Because I feel like when any of these types of apps that takes off comes out like like Arc, uh the browser yeah. recently. Right. Half of the time now I think they've come out and said plans now but it's like whenever they were first coming out and becoming popular it's like half the responses were like how are you planning on making money because it's like people don't want to take something like email or their browser make it part of their workflow and then have something twisted on them where they don't see it coming were you getting lots of questions like that then um some questions about it for sure uh you know i did not really have any idea about how to approach the the problem of how to monetize a consumer software product. It's a tricky, tricky question yeah. because people are not super used to paying for consumer software relative, especially relative to the value that they derive from them. I feel like yeah. the industry as a whole is just pretty undervalued. Like people can go out to dinner and, you know, get like a pretty mediocre dinner, like, you know, box spaghetti cooked with like, some sauce that's kind of just okay and they're comfortable spending you know 50 bucks 60 bucks for their dinner out uh but you know the same amount of money for software is like just it's a whole different it's a whole different ball game well in particular software that they're getting free from from a tech giant right yeah exactly free from from other players uh so it, it was a whole i was like i have no idea how to approach this let me just say something that reflects my current state of mind. I'll just say the truth, which is that we plan to monetize it in some way in the future, but we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, you know, and at that time I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can have like a freemium thing. Maybe we can, you know, eventually build out enough enterprise, uh, things that will, you know, make it, you know, something where we can sell to enterprise and, and have the consumer part free and, you know, we'll, 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 we'll get into that part of the journey because that's a very complicated topic um, that, you know, I cannot tell you how much I stressed out I over <laughs> how to how to do this. At this at this point, it was it was already called Mimestream was the name of it. Yes. Yes. What's what's the story there? Because I feel like in the early days, especially what I would always hear is like all this accolades about this app. Uh, and then they'd be like, but it's called Mimestream. And I don't know what that means. So, <laughs> now it feels like it's just the term like i like any name once the thing becomes big enough it it almost doesn't matter but like uh yeah where did you yeah. where did that name come from so, so mime stream is a smashing of you know two terms there's mime which is like multi-purpose internet mail extensions which is like the technical standard for <laughs> how you go from plain text email to rich text email that's what mime type in like headers and stuff is about right that's that's yeah that's what mime is is basically extending the original text based email specification into something that can support rich rich text like html and attachments and things like that uh the base the base email specification can't support that stuff and stream was to indicate that it is a lightweight streaming client that mm. is designed to work with the server rather than treating the server as just some like mail delivery liaison it is designed to really integrate deeply with the server and sort of stream 
the content from the server and you can have a hundred gigabyte mail archive and that's not going to take a hundred gigabytes of space on your on your device to have access to it all unlike apple mail well i guess that one now is also more like that but it's still it like it archives a lot more locally right yeah on the desktop it still stores a copy of every single message by by default um not the attachments now that changed while i was there okay but the uh the, at least the the content of every single message is is stored. The attachments are still now for new users. It was an opt in thing where you you know by default really old attachments are no longer cached for new users, but you can opt back into having a full copy of everything if you really want it. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, so that was where the name came from. Now, why did I choose that name? Honestly, I mean, I chose it in 2019, where it's hard to find a domain name yeah uh and it's just really hard and i remember i was just like going through all these domain name generators and going through all these like premium domain name websites and just i had a spreadsheet that was over 300 rows long of different name ideas and uh you know i wound up being like i'm gonna pick mimestream as my starter name because all the social media handles are available the domain is available I don't have to pay 20000 for the yeah. domain. Let me just start with this and maybe I'll rename it later. <laughs> so and then if you have that many users coming in, it's not like, like that's not the area that makes sense to focus on, right? I almost began to start like it almost became a little bit like a funny thing for me where like it was a common comment that I'd see on forums where people would be like, great app, horrible name. <laughs> uh, and I, I almost was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Like, you should make that your like, tagline. Oh, tag your <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, I, to be fair, I don't think it's a horrible name. No, I um, don't either. But it's, you know, it's one of those things where I, I understand why people don't understand, uh, why some people don't understand why, you know, it it is the, the name that it is. Um, yeah. But, you know, and it, it's the sort of thing where naming is is really tough. Uh, but I have also found that it doesn't actually matter that much from a business standpoint. Like a name is just the name, you know, and you can, you know, you can spend a hundred thousand dollars on a domain for a really premium one. And for a bootstrap company, just getting off the ground, is that worth it? I don't think that's a good use of money. Well, and especially like you're not, you're not on, you know, the iOS app store or something where, right your name and ASO are like the most important thing in the world. Uh, right. It kind of seems like sometimes it's right. like, yeah, reputation, especially with mail. It's like reputation is everything. And honestly, the fact that it doesn't have the word mail or box in the name somehow, like almost every single other one is kind of uh, nice. Yeah. It might actually help on, on that sort of thing when, when I get there. Um, but you know, at, at the same time, I was like, you know, so many other like tech behemoths that have kind of ridiculous sounding names. If you actually step back and look yeah. at it, like Google, Yahoo, right. the Wii, even Microsoft is kind of a nerdy name. <laughs> yeah. Like Microsoft is kind of a nerdy name. Yeah. You think that about is, it. Like that it's, is it's, one of my favorite <laughs> ones to like, remember like its name. As like, oh yeah, microprocessor software. Is that what it was? It's just like the yeah. most, uh, or microcomputer. I don't remember what it, but either way. Yeah. It's like the most eighties, like, yeah, you know, exactly. 9,000. It feels like that's like the name of a company, but the name and the company have merged together. Yeah. I, I've had this conversation with 
a lot of people like starting out and being like, I can't pick a name for the app or something. And I'm like, really just, I think it doesn't matter that much, you know, just, just pick something where you're going to steer clear of any like, you know, patent or patent office problems, steer clear of, you know, having to spend a ton of money on a domain unless you're venture funded, you know, and just, just get something and just get off the ground, you know. Now, w- will we never rebrand? Like, I can't say that for sure. Like, maybe some point we'll we'll get to that point where we're, you know, it might have it might make sense to like have a budget for you know a rebrand as a company grows. And a lot of companies do that. That eventually, over time, um, they'll they'll get to that point. But uh, you know, right now, right now, it seems to be uh, it's it's you know, Mindstream is not about uh being the like coolest sounding thing or the coolest app per se. Like that's almost not the mission of the the app or the company because I mean, it's an email client. That's not the coolest thing you can come up with to begin with. But you can imagine a VC heavy gradient and dithering version of an email client that would be, (laughs) it's it's kind of weird to to say, but it's like (laughs) I, when I see software like that, it like signals something to me, right? It's like, this might be innovative in terms of like new features or whatever, but I don't expect that looking software to be solid. Does that make sense? And that's not fair. I can see that. It's just yeah, in terms yeah. of user signaling. And obviously I'm a developer, so that right. plays yeah. into it too. That, that might be, that might be, I think the developer angle might be a part of it. But sometimes you go to a website and it's like the login box like animates in and there's like a flying gradient in the background and you're kind of like, Oh boy, like here we go. You know what I mean? It's a different signal than something that just is fast and a little more pragmatic in its uh, marketing. Yeah. I mean, I have always found it very like concerning to try apps that say they're going to fundamentally reinvent something that is already decades old. And, you know, that's. And I'm used to. That, that people are used to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I haven't really heard too much, you know, at least the people who find us appreciate that Mindstream on the whole doesn't try to reinvent anything. It, we, we, we tend to go after obvious things that everyone yeah. is like, what should be there, but is not there. And that's really kind of our mission is to focus on that stuff. Um, because I mean, you know, it, it really is like you can, it, it's all the ideas in email are just kind of straightforward. I think you could get, you know, like a bunch of people who work in email together and you come up with a list of the, you know, top 50 things you want to do. And it would be like overlap and like 90% of it. And it really is every time I go to any conference with other people in email, it's always like everyone wants to do the same stuff. Um, and it's all really obvious stuff. Right. And it's just like, it's, it's complicated to do for technical yeah. reasons or whatever. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of, you know, that was another reason why it hasn't really been like really an issue. I guess that cuts back to your original thing about bootstrapping versus VC too. If you're VC, right. you have to take a giant swing. Right. That has a low probability of success. But if it does succeed, it's a big outcome. Whereas you're right. not structured to need to do that. Right. I mean, yeah, just the 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 elevator pitch of it's a good email app that's not enough for vc and I, i've spoken to plenty of vcs yeah. and you know i think i think there was a time where they were still interested in that elevator pitch 
of it's a good email app. They just kind of didn't care about the elevator pitch as much as they saw articles about it. And they're like, oh, let's, let's talk about this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I think in the grand scheme of things, like it just doesn't make sense if that's your if that's your if that's your pitch. And for me, you know, I think for me personally, it also wasn't really the sort of thing that I wasn't really the stretch that I wanted to make. I yeah. wanted to be able to work on this for, you know, I would love to be able to be working on this 15 years from now. Right. That's, that's my, that's my mission. That's my goal. I don't want to be taking a swing that has a 5% chance of success. And then oops, in three years, we're out of money and now yeah. it didn't work. So either we became a hundred million dollar company at the end of three years, or we're shuttering our doors. That wasn't what I wanted to do because I really enjoy doing this. And so I, I was like, you know, I'm just going to take the more sustainable, uh, the more sustainable route and just, uh, kind of bootstrap. So speaking of sustainability, how long was your beta where you weren't making any money? <laughs> uh, I didn't. So I didn't make any money for a long time. I didn't make any money from June 2017 until May 2023. That's so. So I couldn't. I was getting like me a, as a user who had fallen yeah. in love with the app. I was starting to get concerned that I haven't given <laughs> you money yet. Uh, I remember you'd like say something about a release coming up and I'd just be like, Oh God, please like, let me give you money. I don't want you to go away. Uh, what was, what yeah. was the reason for, for spending so I can take guesses, but for spending so long on, on the beta. So the beta, the public beta was three, almost three years long, uh, just shy, just a couple months shy of three years long. Um, and you know, I felt like it just, through that time, we just, the table stakes, you know, it was just the table stakes just took a long time to build and people liked it, but it just, it kept feeling like, you know, the people that were coming in and trying things and just, we just would lose people who were trying the app because of X, Y, Z reasons times a hundred. I just wanted to try and get as many of those done as, as possible. Cause like you're, people are bouncing through the beta period too, right? Right. Right. So, yeah. like, what's different about them bouncing during the beta period than after it launches? Is the idea just that you were thinking the 1.0 launch is, like, this big opportunity to get people back or something? Like, wh why not start charging earlier? Yeah, it wasn't so much about the 1.0 launch having some, like, big, splashy press. It wasn't about that. It was about, first, honestly, the first year of the beta I had no idea what the monetization strategy was going to be. And <laughs> I probably just app itself. I just was that, enjoying yeah. building the app. And then, you know, every month I would spend one day thinking about how to monetize. And I'd be like, oh, oh my God, this is <laughs> such a hairy problem. I don't want to deal with that. Let me just keep building the app. Uh, so that was like the first year. And then the second year, I think I began to like think a little bit more about monetization. And that was where it became apparent to me that like, you know, I talked to some users. I sent out a couple surveys also about pricing to like get a better idea of where people will be willing to pay for things. And it was clear that there's, you know, there were definite camps of people, people who just are really not very price sensitive at all. As long as it actually did everything that they wanted it to do, uh, they were not going to be very price sensitive at all about that. And there were people who were going to be very price sensitive if it was anything more than five bucks one time for life. You know, and 
so uh, so it became very clear that like that segment was not going to work you right. know just from a numbers perspective and i was like i need to build something that the people who really have high high requirements are going to be happy with and are going to be able to stick with and then i just couldn't get out of my mind that like okay i want to i want to satisfy a base level of what that's going to take uh so that then consumed most of 2022 and then finally by 2023 i think i kind of was like i'm going to launch in the new year uh and then kind of that wound up getting pushed to like may or so was it just like i need to get this out or did you feel like you had crossed some threshold in your mind or on paper or something um you know i was i was really hesitant to turn on the money faucet uh (laughs) because i just didn't want i didn't want to uh lose i didn't want to introduce something that didn't have the the right pricing model that i could Mm. stick with for a long time so there's two things you know, one is that I wanted something that would sustain the company for a long time. I wanted something that would enable us to reinvest in in the product. Uh, I wanted something that would work for the long haul. I wanted something that was very reasonable and fair for, for everyone involved. Um, and I wanted something that we could introduce and not really have to like substantially change. You know, right. there's a lot of apps that start with like version one is some, you know, uh, you know, like nine ninety nine one time purchase, and then version two now becomes like twenty nine ninety nine, and then version three switches to some subscription, and like that. Just I, I'd seen a lot of you know consternation when you sort of change the deal right. on on people, and people get really crazy about that sort of thing. And you know, I felt like okay, I've never asked anyone for money. This is my one chance to sort uh, of pick. Okay pick the model that you know is really going to work so let me basically just get to directly get to the you know what could have been a version three of a you know kind of early because a lot a lot of people told me they're like dude this is like you could have launched version one and version two and been on version three by now or something like that i've definitely heard that that feedback um and i was like let me just get to that point where i felt comfortable introducing the long-term sustainable and at that point, was it just you or had you hired? No, I had already hired some folks. So it was starting to become a uh, kind of important to, to get it. So I hired my first folks in 2021, actually. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, and, you know, we had, we had grown and, uh, you know, the whole payroll had started to, uh, add up as well. So I was I investing, imagine. you know, my, my, my life savings into getting this company off the ground, uh, without having seen a single cent come back in. Uh, but, you know, I, I really felt like it was the right, I felt like it was the right strategy to just build something that people could actually use and then, you know, give people a fair, uh, a fair pricing model that's like right off the bat. Like, I just don't know if, if I introduced, uh, you know, because my, Mimestream is a subscription uh, licensing model of forty nine ninety nine a year or four ninety nine a month, but in what September of twenty twenty, in the shape that that app was in at that time, would people have actually bid on it at that time? Right, or would you've had to raise prices as the yeah? Features like I got mean, bigger, maybe but... I could have raised. I could have started with some token thing, but it just felt like too far of a leap. Like I, 
I don't think this strategy is right for a lot of apps or the vast majority of apps. But if you're building something like an email client, browser, something like that, where the table stakes are just through the roof and just so high, I just don't know how you can really, you know, really force people to cross the line of making a decision of, you know, opening is opening up my wallet worth it. Yeah. And honestly, the, the question of, am I even going to take the credit card out of the wallet and type in, it wasn't even about the amount. It was just the act of paying anything at all. It was the biggest barrier. Yeah. It's the difference between zero and one cent, right? Like, uh, is the biggest jump. Right. That that's the biggest barrier that's gonna, you know, that's, that pushes people over the edge. So, you know, we, I started hiring in 2021 and then, you know, in 2022 and 2023, I mean, the team had actually grown. We were up to six people at one point. Is that, is that like support development mixture of, it was a mixture of, uh, support and development. Okay. Uh, so it had, it, we, we, we had grown to six. Now we are uh, a little bit of a smaller size. We are four right now. Okay. Uh, but, uh, going to be revisiting that and kind of in the, in the, in the short term, I think. Yeah. So it had, it had started to add up. It wasn't something where it was like, oh, I'm going to run out of money or something, you know, with the launch date. The launch date was just sort of kind of my like personal deadline. I think I had set, you know, I actually launched it a day before my birthday. Oh, wow. And I was like, I was like, I want to just get this thing out. I want it to be done before I turn uh, 38. Yeah. I was like, this is just, this is something I want to, I want to have and be, be, be done with. Uh, so I timed it for a day before uh, we, we stuck with that. I was like, oh, happy birthday to me. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the, how did the launch itself go? Like what, I guess, what did you do in preparation running up to it? Obviously, I guess we already talked about it, but you landed on a subscription model. I spent a lot of time investigating pricing and trying to determine price, you know, sensitivity. Uh, and like you said earlier, you know, the difference between zero and one cent was the biggest, the biggest barrier. Um, then there was a little bit of a barrier between, you know, the one-time payment model and the subscription model. Um, there was definitely a bear, a, a, a small bump there, but you know, when I, when I looked at it and just saw what, uh, what, what people were willing to do, at least in the surveys that I had sent out, uh, it seemed like subscription was going to be the right thing in terms of what I wanted to build a product into. So subscription was really clear that the types of users that wanted, that were comfortable with a subscription payment model had really kind of complicated requirements of the app. And and they were just like, you know, they were just like, dude, if it works, I'll pay you whatever. Like this is just I don't like, want it to go non-issue. Away. This yeah. is a non-issue for me. The, the, the cost is a non-issue if you can solve my problems and if you can handle my workflow well. It's just a non-issue. I can say like I'm not like some jet setting executive, but between, you know, multiple apps, uh, multiple like this podcast and all these different projects, I have significantly too many emails that uh, I have to keep <laughs> up with, right? I'm sure you hear this a lot. And like the ability to manage and they're all Gmail based and the right. ability to manage all of that in a client that I can actually quickly move through and navigate is so unbelievably valuable that it's like I'm willing to pay pretty decent amount more than maybe I even should 
just because it's such a pain. And I spent so long with it being such a pain that once you had something that worked well, it's like, yeah, that's why I was saying earlier. It's like, I, I, I wanted to make sure that you had money because I was just so afraid it wasn't going to work <laughs> out. And then it would kind of die on the vine. And that was like an unacceptable situation once I had oh, a hold no. of something that I liked, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I, I knew I was going to invest a fair amount of money into it. And by the time I had invested that much of my life into it, I knew that, okay, you know, investing that much of my life plus investing a fair chunk of money, like, you know, it's all kind of interchangeable. I might as well do that. So I knew I was sticking with it. And that's why I kind of didn't feel the need to like turn or to force the money question before I felt like I had enough of a value prop to do it. Uh, we also did a like a 1.0 release that introduced a bunch of new features. So it wasn't like end of beta. And now we just like switch this. It was like we introduced like 10 new features yeah. in the 1.0 release. That was that, the, that was the you know, calendar uh, integration stuff, right? Was that with that? We added like multiple account profiles. We added support for server side filters, um, and just a whole bunch of other things, uh, in, in involved too. Um, kind of forgetting some of them now. It's been a little while. I've just gotten used to them being part of the app. Uh, but yeah, server, certainly filters and, and profiles were like the two headline, two most headline, uh, features, uh, that we, that we added in the, in the 1.0 uh, yeah, and release. Pro so profiles are the, um, you know, if you've used the mail app or own any email client that lets you use multiple accounts, it's like you have, you know, your left sidebar, you can have all your different email accounts, you can see them all unified. But then profiles let you kind of group those email accounts into like, I have a work one and a uh, personal one. And so it's kind of like a way to group your different email clients or uh, sorry, your email addresses into separate like sort of chunks. Is that an accurate way? Right. Of yeah, exactly. That? And then you can have all of your personal accounts still be shown as one unified inbox and all your work right. accounts still showed as one unified inbox if that's something that you like. Um, and we, we thought that was kind of like the best of both worlds in terms of unified inbox versus accounts separate because that was always, you know, some people love unified inbox. Some people were just like, I don't want my personal and work email mixed together. We want it totally separate. Um then we did some other integrations with the system, like being able to set custom notification hours for each profile. So you can like mm, not be yeah. interrupted by work notifications, you know, on the weekend and also integrating with like the system focus state. So when you enter a certain focus, you can turn off your, you know, work emails when you're in a certain focus, you can turn off your personal emails when you're in the work focus, et cetera. Um, so it was a couple different kind of nice integrations in there yeah. to help you kind of focus and manage the distraction of of email so so that launch went out what was the sort of reaction like how did that all go uh the reaction was you know kind of what you would expect i would say that fortunately you know the the move of consumer productivity apps from one-time payments to subscriptions had fortunately already been a well-trotted path uh by the time we came out and so it wasn't we certainly heard people that were not seeing the value in paying for for you know a consumer email app and i totally understand that um and you know like if that's if your requirements don't call for it then then why should you pay that's that's perfectly fair uh but on the whole, it was relatively positive. Um, you know, honestly, the people, the number of beta users that converted into paying users was a lot 
lot higher than I was anticipating. Well, that's um, nice. And yeah, that was, I mean, it was like three times higher than I was anticipating. <laughs> so Dang. I was like, that's, that's great. Uh, at least the people that used it every single day. Now, the people that only opened it like once a week and then didn't open it every single day, those people kind of like, you know, obviously that segment mostly dropped off. Right. Uh, but the people that had it open every day, more the, maj- the majority uh, stuck with the app. Dang. Which yeah. was, you know, just pretty good for a consumer app. New users are a little harder to sell to uh, when you have sort of like a, you know, a price up front and you kind of don't really let people like kind of get super familiar with the app and like why they should use it. Uh, and, and is, you know, we, we currently do a 14 day free trial. So I was going to ask, yeah, we take a little bit of a different spin on the free trial. Like we don't automatically convert or anything. We don't ask for a credit card up front. We just let you just download the app and just start using it. And just like at the end of the 14 days, if you're convinced then you can enter your credit card. Which is easier uh, to do because you're outside of the app store. Yeah, you're not, it, it, you're not I, in the Mac app store at all, right? No, we're not. We're not in the Mac app store. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll eventually get there when we launch our iOS app. Uh, but for now, we are outside. And, and that lets us do a couple things that, you know, we, we, we can get out of our sandbox with a little yeah. helper agent for a couple things that are just allows us to deliver a little bit of a better experience uh for certain things um the mac version the mac app store version would just have that all snipped out like we'd still offer it but there would be a few little things here and there that are snipped out uh we also do uh, a fair amount of business licensing uh and so this is like you know being able to sell uh volume licenses to a business and letting anybody with a custom domain at that business's you know domain activate and use the app was that that wasn't there at launch was it it was there it, it, it that 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 what was there at launch and that was uh, honestly the key reason why we didn't just go with the app store subscription infrastructure uh was to be able to to do that um and uh yeah that has been surprisingly um that has been surprisingly positive. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, security and, and privacy reasons why an IT admin might prefer to basically shut off all IMAP access and only specifically allow this, this one app to use the Gmail API. Uh, and, you know, we have some additional features for management of, you know, company licenses, et cetera. Uh, but that was, that was the key reason that, you know, we can have just a group licensing yeah infrastructure is just not there on the app store unless you do the like traditional one-time purchase for their volume purchase program uh but yeah so on the whole it went super well obviously if you launch any software product with a subscription you're going to see some people that are going to write comments in articles or write comments on forums uh that should be expected by anyone that decides to go that path um but i mean i think it's i think it's pretty well established now that if you are if your goal is to build a best of class app that is continuously investing in polish continuously fixing bugs that are reported continuously adding features and functionality continuously adopting the newest features of the os releases that are released every year how could you not do a subscription there's just that's the obvious kind of licensing model this this day and age 
It's amazing how much stuff breaks every time there's a new OS release. And I'm not even talking about major OSs. I'm talking about even the yeah, minor more and more updates can really kill the app. I mean, we've had, I remember it was like Mac OS 12.3. There was some minor timing change in some APIs that caused basically all emails to send blank. <laughs> from oh, time stream data <laughs> and that was that was the experience where i was like oh you know for a long time i did seriously i did seriously consider selling version licenses for the app and truthfully we built out all of the licensing infrastructure oh wow to sell versioned licenses as well uh so we built that all that was another reason why we didn't necessarily go with the app store was were I you thought thinking maybe we'll sell. No, just for the users that just really don't like a subscription. Um, so I thought about doing that. And then macOS 12.3, you know, killing the, like completely killing the sent messages. That just made me feel like, oh. Yeah, because the old expectation of that would have been you still do uh, like patches and stuff for those right. old versions. So then you did like... Yeah, every year, every not even every year, every point release, what you have to run a big suite of tests against every version of your app that you've sold licenses for. It just seems and and crazy. it's also difficult to compare like legacy versions of Adobe software or legacy versions of Microsoft software that might be versioned against like a relatively new indie app because yeah. Apple internally, I mean they have a list of must not break apps. You know, the like frameworks are littered with one-off fixes for weird expectations of old apps, but yeah. a new, like a small indie app, like, you know, Bimestream would not benefit from that kind of treatment. So the, the, you know, people are like, Oh, I can run my version of Microsoft office from eight years ago, nine years ago. It's like, well, that would not apply to a much smaller app because that, that, that app is running because Apple is making sure it is still running. Yeah. It's exactly. not running just because it is just an accident. Um, so there was that. We have also had like Gmail API changes that also just like cause the app to start crashing on launch instantly. In fact, I had to send out an embarrassing email being like, I'm sorry, guys, all of your apps are crashing on launch. Here's a link to the updated version. We can't even install the update because it crashes as soon as you I try think to I remember that. <laughs> install yeah. the update. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, and there's several other like less catastrophic versions of that, but by the end of the beta, um, I became fairly convinced that it just, it wasn't going to be fair to sell, uh, a one, a version license to users. I think that became really clear to me that like the expectation of people was like, oh, you know, I'll buy this app and it will work forever with the features that I paid for. And that would have been their expectation around a version license and just sort of cutting it off and like no longer sending updates to that was just not going to be feasible because it was just going to be dead in the water within a year anyways. Yeah. On either end, on the platform either end, end on, so, for the Mac or Gmail. Right. API. So either we really had to sell a real lifetime subscription or subscription only. And the real lifetime thing just, I mean, my goal was not, I'm not trying to do this for two or three years, get in, get yeah. out. All right. I mean, my goal is to be able to be like, okay, in, in, you know, be it five years, 10 years from now, I want MimeStream to be 
like totally on top as you know supporting all the major services supporting lots of platforms just be the clear best prosumer email client if that's if you've got email needs mindstreams where you come and you get a good email client supports all your services every every device and platform that you have uh and i just don't see how to get that with you know a lifetime payment you can make right. some arguments about like you know the lifetime value of a customer versus the payment and and that trade-off um and maybe you know that's something that you know could arguably be worth revisiting i know a lot of apps have had some success with with doing that i feel like your attention numbers are going to be very different than a normal consumer subscription yeah. app, mobile app right where it's like right what percentage of your users are still actively using your app three years later or something but it's like right if mimestream continues the way like it's going to be like fantastical is for so many people where it's like how many of those users have been using it for a decade plus right you know what i mean like and also it was it's like when you test paywalls you like very quickly learn that the more options you add the more like confusion and drop off you get so you just don't want to really add a lot of unnecessary options you want to keep it like simple. Yeah, pay, man, paywalls are weird. Like I'm literally testing testing one right now which is doing the opposite of that and I'm my numbers are low enough that it's not significant, but I've heard <laughs> this where showing more options uh can actually convert better weirdly. But everything with paywalls seems to behave different than what my intuition would say. Um but that's on the mobile uh very consumer not prosumer level so when you say showing more options do you mean showing fewer options or do you mean showing because my experience was showing fewer options was converting better than so i've heard this from lots of people which is why i'm running it it also depends on the app and space yeah exactly it's so different but uh yeah i've i've heard from lots of people that if so i have like uh you know one annual plan or whatever but i also do have a lifetime and a monthly but I kind of had it hidden behind a like all plans button. So it's kind of like, I'm not making anybody make a choice, but if they, if they were going to bounce, they could find that and see whatever. Um, but I've heard from so many people that showing all the plans up front uh, actually performs better that I was like, Oh, I'll run an experiment and try this. Uh, and again, I'm early enough in the experiment and my numbers aren't gigantic. So it's not statistically significant, but I think when I checked this morning, it was like, you know, like a 10 or 15% uh, better result on the one showing all of the plans versus the one only showing one. Right. Which is like, it's like the same for onboarding. Like I've heard really long onboarding flows perform better than short, quick, Hmm. get the person into the app quickly. I think it has something to do with like your signaling, uh, your signaling value like the longer that onboarding is, the more it's like, oh, this thing does a lot. Like it's not yeah. this simple basic thing, which from a product perspective, especially kind of having the Apple ethos, we're always thinking in terms of progressive onboarding. You want somebody to open the app and be like, this is so simple and it does exactly what I need and that's it. And then every time you want something more, you like discover it, right. which is great. Exactly. But if you're trying to sell somebody on a subscription, you want to like, signal to them at the very beginning that like this does so much stuff so i don't know it's kind of paywalls are weird is basically the- yeah i've been struggling <laughs> with that exact question myself you know my machine has a fairly light onboarding of just kind of getting you to set up an account and get right in but then you know i hear i do hear people being like i opened it 
what does it do different? And it's like, well, we probably should maybe get into like a little tutorial or something at some point. That's, that's yeah. definitely it just on feels the list dirty. of things to do. Uh, it feels, yeah, it feels like, especially, you know, having spent time at Apple, I was yeah. like, that's not the way that Apple would build a product. And, you know, that's not the way that I want to build a product. But uh, when when you have to. But Apple's goals are different, right? It's free. It's built in. Totally. Good. They're, they're not trying to make money from it. Yeah. Right. They're, they're trying to just have it be very lightweight and just simple. And that's their that's their goal is to be as initially approachable as as right. possible, and they succeed very well at that. You know, so it, but it is different when you're an indie maker trying to actually charge money for for things. But yeah, uh, yeah you know, the other thing that really sh- struck me. So as a developer, my impression going into the pricing question was that there would be a lot of best practices, and that with enough research, I would find the answer. Oh, yeah. And that is just so not true. You cannot research your way to an answer for what is the correct pricing model for your app. There is yeah. no other way than to just get dirty, survey, and try things and experiment because it's this mix of your space, your app, how good it is, what kind of users you found. Like it's just this mix of all of those, and there's just no one answer you know, fits all yep. solution for a lot of, I mean, for a lot of apps, like little utility apps or certain types of apps, like that traditional one-time payment is still probably the right one from a business standpoint. You know, it just, it really depends a lot on the app. There's no one size fits all. And I think it took me a long time to accept that. Honestly, I read every single article I could find about pricing for consumer apps. I bought books on pricing and I just drove myself nuts for months. I drove everybody that knew me nuts <laughs> for, for months. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, to be like it, yeah, it's frustrating, especially as a Apple developer designer, because right. so much of you know from the beginning of the Mac, right, the Hig being like right. this. It's not. It's not even like this is the uh, scientifically best way. It's more like this is the platform best way we're we're choosing as a platform there's a right answer for this and then anytime you veer off of the right answer you need to have the strong reason right so it's not like you can't break the rules but you have to understand the rules to not break them and then getting into the pricing world um and just subscription marketing and all of that you know broader speaking it's so much more loosey-goosey and and changing all the time uh and like in my like in my space, you know, making a noise app meditation field, you know, there's a, there's like a trillion of these apps, and they all approach it differently. And like the more I dig in, the more I learn. Even within the app, they approach it differently, based on right. you know what the user is doing in the app and all that. It's so complicated, and uh, and yeah, that's it's working at Revenue Cat. That's something that I've been getting sort of impressed very heavily on me as well which is like there's literally no right answer ever there's always an right. exception to every rule um right. and often you can exploit that exception if you have the right group like if everybody goes subscription and you're the one teleprompter app that's uh a one-time 15 dollar payment which seems high but it's it's the only one left and somebody only needs to use this for one meeting or event or something they're like yes i want the one that i can just give money to you know i'm done they're not even gonna like retain because they're only 
using it for this one event. And that could literally be a big enough market for you, especially as an indie or something. So yeah, it's, it's super weird. Yeah, it's super weird because as a, as a developer, you really want the, the right answer. You want to know what's the right answer to this. And also, you're kind of like, you know, as a developer, you're not, you're used to trying to make everyone happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's something you just can't do with pricing. The only way you can make something, ha- everyone happy is if you make your work free and open source then and even then people will still complain about it but yeah you know uh, there's 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 just no way that you can make everyone happy and you know so the right the right answer a lot of times is well you have to decide to you have to decide that you know when you're going to price something you're going to lose some people that you could have gotten if you had at at a lower price so it really uh you know it really just it's a complicated area there for sure and I, I think I finally accepted that experimentation was the right was the right way to do it, um, and just sort of picking something you can you can live with, uh, <laughs> yeah, for the for the long term, uh, and something that will actually enable you to to meet your goals. Uh, but yeah, it certainly is not. It was pro- it was probably the most challenging aspect of getting Mimestream to a launch was licensing and billing. Definitely by far the most challenging aspect. So you you mentioned it a couple times, um, but the thing I remember after launch, the the predominant questions I kept seeing asked were, "When's the iPhone version coming?" And you you kind of would like tease it or a little bit, but then you've mentioned it a couple times in this. What what's the story there? You kind of mentioned wanting to be on all platforms, but I'm guessing that was the obvious next sort of step. Yeah, the iPhone version. Or the iOS and iPad OS version, I should say, is the obvious next step for us. Um, that's kind of the major engineering focus of the team right now. Um, we sort of are continuing to work on the Mac app, but we're sort of focusing more on like compatibility and bug fixes and kind of like alleviating support drivers. Um, and that's sort of the theme of kind of what you see in the updates for the Mac app right now. We still do have some features in the pipes for it. It's not that we're like pausing development on the Mac app or something, um, but everyone wants the iOS app. So the iOS app is the, you know, the predominant focus for us right now. And it's been a kind of a big project because the Mac app started as Swift and AppKit. And then over time evolved into a mix of, you know, on the front end, a mix of AppKit and Swift UI. For iOS, we're doing like a full, like we're trying to do as much Swift UI as possible for the iOS app. And as part of that, we're also trying to like make sure we have the same code base for the front end mm. between Mac and, and iOS. So we're like, Right, breaking off little pieces here and there, silently swapping them to be Swift UI in the updates, and hoping nobody notices. I like that. That's interesting because it seems like most people they do a big, they use the Swift UI transition as an opportunity to uh, reskin, like redo the UI. And any UI update like that is going to have pushback. But it's interesting because when it's paired with, in a marketing sense, this is Swift UI. It almost right. adds an extra layer of like, uh, another one is going Swift UI and look at how much worse it is. <laughs> and like, I don't get me wrong. I have plenty of quibbles with, with Swift UI, but I, I often am looking at it and I'm like, I don't think that's a, I think that's a design issue that you have. 
that's often yeah. blamed on you know the platform so i i'm interested in the idea of like yeah slowly uh updating because that's what i've done within at least ios apps that i've worked on yeah we've we've broken off like bits and pieces you know like the main window is like a pretty silly <laughs> smash up of AppKit and swift ui right now like all the little like you know the pro click the profile tab like that's swift ui right. you know like i the can't imagine this thing i've done a little bit of swift ui on the mac for a uh not long lasting uh project for like kind of note taking but i was having to deal with all the text apis there yeah. and i was like i i literally can't imagine trying to do that in swift ui anytime soon so we have like the 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 development approach we have is that the the ios app is only swift ui the mac app has two different windows so there's actually like a hidden swift ui main window that we have that no one nobody externally has access to but we use it for you know that's how we develop is we can launch it and so we've got two windows like the oh, app interesting the app kit swift ui mashup window and the swift ui window so we're doing it kind of in parallel and trying to keep it i i, I honestly don't think we're going to be able to ship the swift ui main window to mac os right off the bat that was the original goal but the new goal is let's get swift ui and the ios app shipped yeah with feature parity to the mac app that's the current goal and then once that's out and once that's you know battled once that battle is fought and we've polished that out then then the like follow-up project is going to be to replace the finish the replacement of the mac main window with the uh the you know the swift ui based one is the thesis for the iphone app the same basically like a super polished like if apple had made a mail app for using gmail Yep, it's exactly the goal is to be a carbon copy of our Mac app with all the same features. That's the goal. How does that do you you don't currently have sync? I'm trying to remember. I I'm looking at I have two devices because I have my personal one and my work one that yep. both run MimeStream and I my memory was that I set everything up on both, but now I don't remember. Is there syncing currently? Yeah, there's no there's no like account and settings sync. And that's something that we're going to be looking at uh, because, you know, I think you're the, the folks with multiple Macs are a little bit of a uh, not 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 the majority. Right. Uh, yeah, they're yeah. definitely out there, but they're not the majority. It didn't surprise me if that was the case so much that right. I don't even remember because all, all I was really setting up is my accounts and then my profiles. Right. Right. But certainly having a mac and an iphone is the majority if you have one so that's 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 a whole different story for us and yeah we're going to be looking at that and you know on the whole there are some other syncing challenges that are a little bit more uh attuned to the limitations of or not the limitations the like requirements um of ios uh that we're we're we are working on but overall you know, it still is kind of early stages. People keep asking me, when's the test flight? When's the test flight? And I'm like, I know better than to tell yeah, people yeah. <laughs> a date. And I can't tell people a date. You know, all I can tell people is that, look, we're working on it as hard as we can. The real question is, when's your birthday? And then each year, <laughs> we'll wait for the day before. Uh, <laughs> and then it's like, if it passes, it's like, all right, one more year. <laughs> there you go there you go well you'll have to figure that one out it might not be too hard uh but yeah you know i i do want to have that sooner than later i've been toying with the idea recently of reducing the scope of the ios 1.0 you know and just getting something out without 
all of the features of the Mac app there for version one, just so people can like use it and yeah. and get that that whole thing going. But uh, you know, certainly, I think uh, I think it'll be a huge uh, a huge increase in the value proposition of the Mac app um, and, you know, being able to have the same thing on, on both devices. And well, and just as an acquisition tra- channel, like right. The app That's store true. is just an unreal funnel of humans. Right. Yes. Especially on iOS. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 On iOS. Yeah. The Mac, not so much. Right. It's, it might've helped if we were on the Mac app store, but I wasn't convinced that it would have helped enough relative to the hit, uh, to the, to, to the, you know, commission hit. And as it is, we had to build everything from scratch for the, the group and organization licensing functionality that we offer. So yeah, we skipped the Mac app store, but on iOS, there'll be no choice. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, but I'm really looking forward to that the value prop there is very different too, just in the scale of, of people that you can address through it. Right. Right. So, you know, it is coming along. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to read email through it. Uh, but for everyone that wants the test for everyone that wants the test flight, you know, it'll have to be, you have to keep waiting a little longer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know, the one thing I I realize is that it's not, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing email for a long time. Like if I just open up the, I, I already have a pretty good idea of what needs to be done for it in order to get to a good, you know, test flightable, actual usable and livable point. Like why tarnish people's first impressions of the app on a new platform Yeah. Uh, before, before it really is ready. It's one thing if you're like building a new app and you're trying to figure out like what are the requirements or you really are done all the features and you're trying to polish it off and, and and really get the functionality all straightened out you know the function the core functionality for us is not really i I think it's it's i mean the entire back-end framework is just lifted there's nothing that's changed from the mac version that's just a shared framework so all of the model layer of the app is exactly the same already even between you know the 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 app kit mac version and the uh swift ui ios versions i mean that's the stuff that tends to produce most of it it's just missing ui functionality at this point so yeah but that's the uh that's the key that's the key focus you know i'm really hoping to uh be making some very awesome progress on that in the in the coming months and uh you know i I hear loud and clear from everyone that's what people want number one and the number two is people want support for more than just email yeah Uh, but everyone wants these two things and uh ios is going to be the first one that we decided just because it's an order of magnitude more people asking for that than yeah and it's like it's a different thing right the the ios one addresses the same market through a different channel right the non-gmail it's like so many of your features and your current entire user base is all gmail based and so it's kind of a different like your your whole elevator pitch is different at that point because then at that point are you are you just an imap email app or are you talking to different i i guess other email providers have apis too i don't really know that much about it it's a complicated topic but yeah i think we'd have to do support for a lot of things i mean microsoft has a very custom api uh that we could you know integrate deeply with the graph api uh i don't really think anyone's really using it in this kind of capacity yet uh but that's something we are very keenly interested in is the i guess maybe it is like 
even your current market, it's like if I had one or two emails that were not Gmail based, then I might want that mixed in with my, is that pretty common? It's very common that people okay. just have like, they're like, I have this iCloud account that I use for just shopping receipts. Yeah. Like I don't use it that much, but I just want it in the app. Even if it's just the list of folders with messages in it, it doesn't do anything fancy. That's fine. I just want it in the app. It's going to come eventually. It's definitely going to come. Like, there's no way that's not in the future for, for MindStream. And, right. you know, MindStream will have a future, fortunately, with the uh with the launch you know things are things are looking good we're in a very financially sustainable place uh so i think we'll be able to you know the road is clear that we're going to be able to build this for 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 years to come uh and uh continue to grow the team to do that too uh so i think that you know these are these are things that will come but i i am of the opinion that it's better to do less and do less really well than to do try to yeah. do like a bunch of things and and just fumble you know the details on on some of them so i just really like to do one thing at a time do you should it, probably do it as drop well as possible all other things and really get on the vision os version uh oh, post haste no. <laughs> oh, that's 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 yeah. where all the demand's gonna be <laughs> that's, i might i might wait till version two <laughs> yeah yeah you think <laughs> before i get there there might be a decent overlap between uh extreme power users uh of email and the people who will buy this thing and uh, I'm very excited about the platform. Yeah, I just, yeah, from a just, uh, you know, if I, these sorts of things, it's funny how as a developer and a, you know, and a, and a business owner, you sort of are at odds with yourself yes. because you're like, as a developer, I want to do this thing super bad. And you're like, wait a second, I've got people I got to pay. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> we've got to make, we've got to make money to pay people and you know you gotta you gotta do this like i don't i don't i'm not especially like you know sensitive to 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 all of that with with lifestyle and stuff but like yeah i gotta be able to i gotta be able to pay everyone uh that's that's working for the company so yeah it it is the sort of thing where there will be priorities that are maybe not aligned with my instincts as a developer but yeah i still think are yeah i try i try to find the right middle ground between the two uh, but yeah, it's really clear. People want people want iPhone and iPad. That is, I hear it loud and clear. And uh, so that's that's definitely that's definitely the big focus now. Awesome. Well, looking forward to that. Uh, I guess I guess I should try and wrap this up because I think <laughs> we we had a little bit of a recording snafu, which means I restarted my my recording, and I I've, I've been in my head paying attention to the recording time based on the second recording and i just realized ah. i don't know how long this episode actually is but i think i think we might have a a pretty uh decent one but it's it's just got a lot of good stuff in it so i think i think it's been worth it but i'll try i'll try and land the plane here uh so i'll ask you the question that i ask everybody what's a person or people out there that have inspired you that you'd recommend others check out ah that's a good question you know i think i when I just got started with, with Mimestream, um, and I didn't know Michael at the time, I know him now, uh, Flexibits was obviously a major source of inspiration for me. Uh, it was, you know, a similar space, a similar kind of ethos that like we can build a prosumer version of a productivity app, um, and let people who have simple requirements use a built-in version. Uh, and you know, if you've got more requirements, then you can come and use Fantastic Al. Uh, great app, great company. Um, you know, they were really clear evidence to me that like, oh, it is possible 
yeah to build an indie software company that is sustainable and can continue to reinvest deeply in a product and and focus on the edge cases and focus on you know building out clever thoughtful features um so i was really inspired by a lot of their work early on that was i wasn't sure you know if it was possible but seeing them made it really clear that okay at least someone's figured it out and they did that transition right as you're starting this right wasn't that 2019 i forget now i feel like they may have made their transition in like early 2020 maybe from maybe yeah yeah maybe it was 2020 that sounds right subscriptions but even before then even before then it was like still even in 2019 i was still like oh like you know that's still there's still you know a viable like business that there's like a clear source of inspiration for me at that time um uh, I don't know cable personally, but Panic obviously has got to come up on the list of anyone who's a Mac software developer's, you know, core list of inspiration. Uh, I just I love not only the quality of the apps, but also just their style. Yeah. Like they just they just have this like style of like we're just gonna do whatever we think is fun. They have a good vibe and whatever interests us, and I love that. And that's something that I just I really aspire to. I wish I had more of that like spunk in me to just do whatever I wanted to do. Um, but uh, I, I I just love that about them. And on top of that, their tools are just amazing. I mean, I use I use Nova for all my you know web editing stuff, um, and I just love the love the tool. And obviously, you know, like a lot of people use Transmit for things, yeah. and just they just are just excellent excellent tools. And kind of the last one is actually uh, Fastmail. Um, okay, yeah. so uh, there I, I know a couple of folks there, like Neil Jenkins, Bron Gondwana, their CEO, and uh, Ricardo Signes. Uh, and every time I interact with them, they're just they're brilliant people. Um, and they're just like really legit, deep email nerds. And, you know, every time I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I run into them at conferences all the time. And I actually just got back, uh, two or three weeks ago from, from a conference they hosted in, in Philly. Um, and yeah, every time I just interact with them, I'm just like, wow, the email ecosystem is just, you know, brimming with really brilliant people. And, it always feels like it's really hard to make forward progress in email, but these, these these guys are like actually, you know, killing it in terms of being able to uh, influence standards and influence, you know, spread influence through standards orgs like the IETF um, and, and really sort of developing a great email product. Um, and, you know, that to me was kind of like, okay, you know, that, that is reflective of, the second renaissance for email from a, a, a technical standpoint it, and, you know, just seeing what they were doing kind of gave me, gave me hope that it wasn't just all going to be locked in the old, you know, standards and that things were never going to change on, you know, an email interoperability uh, perspective. Uh, so they, they, they really, their, their work has been very inspiring to me to, to, to get back into doing email uh, when I had maybe, given up hope that it was possible to <laughs> it's such actually a crazy do anything field really interesting because it's like it's so unbelievably important you know to and like it's so old basically it's everybody. so old it's yeah, so interoperable like, the web like html is old but right. it's it's had enough competing bodies and influences and whatever that it's it's evolved so much right. over the years and email feels like i guess for different reasons not just 
the nature of the product, but it's like it feels from the outside like it's just still completely stuck in you know very very yeah. old technology. I couldn't tell you the last thing that's happened to email. Uh, yeah, in my and most lifetime. of it is like service independent, right? It's like service, you know, an individual service is implementing a feature. It's not an interoperable feature. Yeah, I could tell you things like Gmail has done, but not like people have added snooze, people have added scheduled send, you know, features like that have have come into emails, but they're usually client or service features. They're not necessarily interoperable. Yeah, uh, standard features. Uh, but some of that stuff is is happening, you know, like international email addresses. Um what is an international email address? Uh, you know, just getting away from like ASCII characters and email uh, addresses, being oh. able to have like accented characters and things like that. Um, so you know, there's been like good adoption on on all of that, uh, and there's a long list of stuff that's still coming down. All of this takes years, you know, years to think about, years to write, years to then see any industry adoption. Um, but uh yeah, I think that's what I really respect about Fastmail is they have a lot of stamina yeah. for dealing for dealing with that in the face of how long it takes to do anything that's interoperable. Great company. I hope to be supporting, you know, those accounts at some point in the future. Uh, but that's you know, it's it's gonna like I, I iOS is just our sole and only priority yeah. right no, now. That but at sense. some point, at some point, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was uh like years i've been anticipating uh doing this episode and getting to meet you so uh, awesome this is... thank you charlie it's been really great to meet you as well where uh where can people find you and your work well that's a much harder question to answer now than it was <laughs> like a year ago or something uh but i am split between i'd say the mastodon would be the best place uh at neil javeri at mastodon.social or at mimestream at mastodon.social uh you can also find me on x slash twitter at neil underscore juveri or at or mimestream uh and lately also linkedin uh so linkedin uh mimestream's page on on linkedin are uh, we have started posting some things there and are going to be posting a little bit more there just to sort of share the uh the company's updates uh yeah uh, but you know of course last but not least our newsletter our good old-fashioned email newsletter so you can sign up for that uh at the bottom of our website that's probably the best way to get like the most comprehensive you know list of updates from us uh if you're interested in that sort of thing thanks for listening this episode was edited by jonathan ruiz if you'd like to discuss the show you can find me on twitter at underscore chucky c or tweet the show directly at launched fm i'd really appreciate a rating or review in your podcast app of choice and you can find show notes and more at launchedfm.com. <laughs>